Thank you to our Chancel Choir and our Chalice Ringers for blessing us this morning. It is my honor to introduce our guest speaker today, the Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes, who's been in congregational ministry for 25 years. 25. 25 years. She served along congregations in the great state of Alabama, in Birmingham, Long Island, in New York, in Georgia, and now on the outer rims of Fort Worth, Texas. For 11 years, she and her husband, Lance Poppy, who's a professor of homiletics at TCU's Bright Divinity School, served as co-pastors, like Marty and I. She studied theology at Yale and Princeton. And she's the founder and lead evangelist of Galileo Christian Church Disciples of Christ. But for us in discipledom, we kind of know it just kind of like Madonna or Cher. It's just Galileo. Famous, and we look to the ministry that they're doing as an example of hope. They're an open and affirming church that boldly welcomes all of God's beautiful people to Christ's table. As their website says, a quirky church for spiritual refugees. And she's the author of the forthcoming uh, book, a memoir that tells the story of the six-year ministry at Galileo. We were spiritual refugees, a story to help you believe in church, which will be coming out next year. But long before all of that... When I was just a very young seminarian in Churches of Christ in Abilene, Texas, we knew of Katie Hayes as the only female pastor in Church of Christ. I think the last female pastor in Churches of Christ. I sent her an email back in 2005 just wanting to know more about her journey. And then when I was serving a church, which I knew would be my last stop in Churches of Christ, I sent her another email in 2008, which is still in the archives of Gmail. And I read it again and I just reached out. She was the first disciple I really ever met. And I didn't know what to do, how to become a disciple minister, but I heard she had done it and perhaps I could too. And she called me a few days later, introduced me to people that then helped me on my walk and brought me here where I am. And Marty as well. She was an example to us that that women can preach. She was the first we knew of. And we are blessed to have her here. When I had a chance to sign up for assembly duties, I signed up for the pulpit supply committee so I could make sure that she preached to us this morning. And so we are blessed to have her. You will be blessed to hear the message she shares with us today. And let us hear our scripture reading. From the Gospel according to John, chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. Hey, church. I'm Katie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I am so honored to be with Norwalk Christian Church and all the attendant guests today. Thank you so much for inviting me into your space, if it's yours, or for coming to join me as a guest here, if you are a fellow traveler. And I am especially glad to bring you greetings from Galileo on those suburban outskirts of Fort Worth, Texas where um, my church will be gathering this evening at 5 p.m., our traditional hour. And I have to say, it took a long time for my body clock to adjust to the sacred hour being, you know, in the evening instead of 10, 11 in the morning. Uh, And so this morning I feel a little sleepy. It's just because I have learned to appreciate my long Sunday Sabbath time. I'm especially glad to remake my acquaintance with Travis and Marty and to rejoice with them in the gracious wide spaces that the capital D Disciples of Christ created for us when we were not here yet. Thank you for that. A secret thrill runs down my spine when the thermometer yields its measure 100.1. It's high enough to make his four-year-old self feel poorly, but not so high that it's dangerous. A slug of cherry-flavored children's Tylenol, and he'll feel better in a jiffy. But if you are a parent, you know what I know, that between now and the medicinal magic, right this minute while he still feels weepy, his nose crusty, his body hot with the effort of fighting off that virus, he will happily settle into my lap nestle his sweaty head in the crook of my shoulder and neck, and I will rock and he will doze his long legs dangling off my lap, not as containable in my arms as he used to be. After a minute, our combined body heat and his fever will make me feel like I'm gonna spontaneously combust, but I will not budge. It has been months since he has willingly let me hold him this close for this long. And now each time I do, I feel in my bones that it may well be the last. Four turns to five. Five turns to first grade. And then he's at frog camp with a thousand other freshmen, all of them wishing their parents could dial back the emotion on those farewell hugs. He cannot know that my earworm, the tune buzzing in my brain is eventide. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. And I know, I know, it's a song about Jesus, not about my son, not about my heart walking around outside my body, but he's far too big for my lap now. He's in charge of his own body, his own future. And I am happy for his eventual adulthood, I am, but I still dream sometimes that he's little, a fat infant at my breast, a sweaty toddler curled into my lap, 
Abide with me, sings my mournful mothering heart. Stay here. Don't go. And that's how it usually works, directionally speaking, doesn't it? Abide is the plea of the one not going anywhere, the one who is staying against the forward motion of the one moving away. Stay a little while, says the sleepy, smitten lover to the paramour getting dressed in the dark, searching for phone and wallet. Do you have to go so soon? My grandmother always asked, even as she lay dying in her own bed in the only home I'd ever known her in. The gospeler Luke in another famous instance of the Koine imperative, Meno, reported from the road to Emmaus that they urged him strongly, saying, Stay, abide with us, because it is almost evening and the day is nearly over. Fast falls the eventide. Abide, remain, be still, don't go. So, it's not immediately clear why Jesus would be the one making the plea for his friends to abide in John 15. He's the one leaving, right? This is the farewell discourse in John, is it not? Shouldn't they be singing to him, pleading with him not to go, positioning themselves between him and Jerusalem, urging him strongly, abide with us because the day is now nearly over and... Without you here, we can't imagine what this looks like by morning light. But no, our expectation is reversed. The one asking for someone to stay is Jesus, the very one whose bags are packed, or would be if he had any earthly possessions. And while it's true that he will wish for their steadfastness in the hours to come while he is on trial for his life and then divested of it, believing that even God has left him alone, no one seriously imagines that Jesus is here asking for their short-term loyalty through the soon-coming valley of the shadow of death. This abide is bigger than that. It's a forever kind of thing, a meta-directive, not only for the friends standing right in front of him, but for us too, all we friends who have been grafted in as branches on the Christian family vine. Mm. There's that vine. That agricultural metaphor Jesus has picked from the pockets of the prophets of old. The luscious green twining of a thousand thousand tendrils stretched out for miles on post and twine trellis, sagging by summer's end with the weight of pure potential. And let us pause to consider potential what? These vines grow a staple of the Mediterranean diet and mine. Not protein, not fiber, but wine. The fruit of that vine is only good for one thing in Jesus' mind or Isaiah's or Ezekiel's or any of the prophets who preached its yield. And believe me, they ain't making jelly. I take every opportunity to remember again how affectionately attached Jesus was to the processes that make community, communion, possible. I am the vine, he said, as he refilled their glasses, and you are the branches. 
Let's grow some good fruit together. Cheers. Freeze. Jesus and his friends in mid-toast glasses aloft. While we remember, as Jesus surely did, that when Isaiah and Ezekiel called it to mind, the vineyard was not a happy place. In Isaiah 5, God the vine grower has carefully planted young vines in good soil from which God's own hands have cleared every single rock. God has practiced the fine and patient art of palissage, the training of young tendrils along the trellis. But when the time for harvest comes, there are no grapes for winemaking and the glasses will be empty this season. Only the useless wild grapes with large seeds and sour flavor, suitable for propagating more of themselves. Not much else. And God is mad as hell about it, the prophet says. So much time wasted, such high hopes dashed. Isaiah 5, 7 through 9. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are God's pleasant planting. The Lord expected justice, but saw bloodshed. Expected righteousness, but heard a cry. Ah, you who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no room for anyone but you, The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. What is the scourge in the vineyard of the Lord, according to the prophet? Acquisitiveness. The gobbling up of real estate by the wealthy few. The refusal to share space as they manspread over the land God gave them. McMansions in cul-de-sacs, zoning out multiple family dwellings, a dearth of low-income housing in support of the working poor, walls built to protect the land we imagine is our own, never remembering it was someone else's first, never believing we aren't entitled to stay, abide, forever. The Lord expected to harvest justice from that vineyard, but got bushel baskets full of entitlement and greed. Expected righteousness to grow, but heard instead the cries of those who were squeezed out, left out, kicked out, kept out. Ah! You who take up more than your fair share of the space and stuff, prepare to be uprooted. Thus says the prophet of the Lord. Back to Jesus, glass in the air, unfreeze. As he sips, he argues with Isaiah in his head. It might be different this time, he says. They've already been dispossessed of the land. They have so little of their own. Maybe this time they'll abide in me, with me, and grow good fruit. No confusion now about what God wants, expects, to see happen. Uh, I don't know, Isaiah says, always skeptical. I've seen what happens when they're invited to settle down. They just snuggle up. They start to think it's all theirs, that you are in support of what they want rather than the other way around. Maybe it'll work out this time. You're the Messiah. We'll see. It's funny. Human nature, our proclivity to grow deep roots real fast and then forget we all came from somewhere else. 
The church I serve is six years old. Yeah, six. Like, like just old enough to enter first grade. <laughs> and we have rented five worship spaces in those six years. And would you believe that we've got such deeply ingrained habits after just six years, even with all that enforced mobility, that when it comes to Christmas Eve or Holy Week or our cherished We Survived the Holidays Party, which we hold every January as soon as everyone returns from the existential beatdown of Christmas visits with their non-queer affirming families of origin, that if you came to Galileo and suggested that we should try something a little bit different on any one of those occasions, well, we wouldn't hurt you, but we'd probably look at you in a way that would make you think we might. Our church is quirky and queer AF, but we're people. We love us some sameness. We abide. Church abides. A friend of mine was commissioned as a missionary to West Africa in the 1990s and returned home a full decade later, surprised and disappointed to see that nothing had changed in his church of origin. No new ministries, no new people, no new ideas, not a single new leaf on the tree, he said. It was like those 10 years during which he had grown and stretched and changed so thoroughly as to hardly recognize himself had not passed in the church of his youth. And we extrapolated from that and other experiences that there are many churches we could walk into and be unsure as to whether it's 2019 or 1989 or 1959 or 1899. Hard to tell. Church abides. But but look, look, look at Jesus in a borrowed room using somebody else's dishes, the son of humanity who had no place to lay his head, never stayed in one place too long, exhorting his friends to abide, to stay, knowing that he's on his way away. What can it mean for those who want to cling to him like a feverish child clings to their parent? We did it, Jesus. We've been steadfast. We sat right here, like you said. We have not moved. We held on tightly. You said stay. We stayed, curled in your lap. And still, we diminish. We are feverish and weak and weepy, but we are here, surviving by God, by sheer grit and determination. Oh, My friends, I can hear him say, oh, my friends, I think you might have misunderstood. I said, abide, yes, stay with me, but in the sense of put your shoes on, keep up. I was never going to stay put. You must have known that. Abide with me. Stay with me. Stay up with me. Come on now. Don't lollygag. We got to go. We got stuff to do. Not in here. Come on. After a little while, the Tylenol kicks in and our feverish child feels better, which is good because we got stuff to do, places to go. Now that little child 
grabs a hand of their parent, and it's time to get out there. The little one now taking three steps for every one of their parents, trotting and panting, keeping up. Stay up with me, I said to my little son in a jillion different parking lots over all those years to ensure that he made it to 18. Let's go. Abide with me. Stay up with me, Jesus says to his church in every place, in every time. Let's go. Abide with me. I want to tell you this idea that I have, this innovation that I think it's time for in most every church's life. It's an idea that I have floated in a bunch of different forums in the last several years, never once finding a single person who would take me up on it. I persist. Here's the deal. I pastored traditional, small, friendly, fine churches for almost two decades. I saw each one of them decline. One of them close. Another couple that should have closed, still clinging to life. Not because they were not faithful. Not because they were not trying. But because, to use the language from John 15, the time for abiding in the sense of staying put, maintaining a way of being that served us well for a couple hundred years, is over. Now I do this next church thing with very young people who have very little use for the churches of their grandparents. Now I feel like I have straddled two worlds, listening to faithful people on both sides of a cultural divide. In one ear, the church as I knew it, the church that raised me and that I love, says, we know how to do this. We've done it for so long, and this way of doing it truly draws our hearts near to the heart of God. If you ask us to change, to give that up, we lose something precious. It just doesn't seem fair. And in the other ear, the millennials and whatever those kids are that come after the millennials, they, they tell me, we are sincerely disinterested in propping up the infrastructure left to us by our grandparents. But we don't think that means we're not Christian. We have other ways of connecting with each other and with the heart of God. Why can't we be free to do that? So, what if... I'm spitballing here. What if all the churches that currently abide with traditional governance and programming and infrastructure, I don't just mean buildings, but the ways that people are connected and how decisions get made. What if all those churches, wait for it, stopped paying their pastors? to take care of them where they are. That's what pastors do, right? We tend the flock. We watch over and feed the sheep we have been given. Pastoring is all about taking good care of the people who are already here, the church as it exists now. Uh, Yeah, I know the church wants to grow, sure, but really mostly to perpetuate more of the same stuff we already know how to do. 
That stuff draws our hearts near to the heart of God, right? Why wouldn't it work in perpetuity? What if instead all those churches with all that history and all that practice and all that infrastructure and all those resources hired not a pastor but a missionary Someone ordained for the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Someone who is ready to move, go, take off, keep up with Jesus, abide with him. The church could say to its missionary, listen, we're going to need a couple things from you. We need good preaching because we love the Bible and we abide in God's word and it strengthens us. And we need decent liturgy. Because we believe it is the church's main work to declare and celebrate the glory of God. And we do it best with words and tunes we already know. We need someone to tend to us in our dying. Prayers at our bedsides. Funerals that hold out the hope that God's promises endure forever and death does not get the last word. Everything else. The budget small group management, the VBS, the estimates for replacing that roof, the management of our custodian, the production of a weekly newsletter, the programming of stuff we just really like to do together, the visitation of the sick, the comfort of the lonely, the kindness to our proximate neighbors. We know how to do that. We've been doing that stuff since before you were born, child. We're steadfast, capable, we abide. And so we estimate, this church could say, we estimate that most weeks we just need a quarter of your time, liturgy, sermon, funerals when they come, but, and here is the kicker, this is where people usually roll their eyes, feel free, I am mostly past the age of hurt feelings. (laughs) But, this church would say to its missionary, we're going to pay you full time and buy you some health care and contribute to your pension fund and give you full use of all this church's resources, chairs and tables, Wi-Fi, AC, whatever we got, you can use. What we need you to do is get out of here. Go find what Jesus is going to do next and do your dangest to keep up. Seek the spiritual refugees that are washing up on our shores. Figure out how to feed the deep spiritual hunger that remains a feature of American culture, even as church as we know it declines. Start a brand new community of belonging in Jesus' name right here, right under our noses. Just don't make us do it with you. (laughs) We're past that. We're just going to abide right over here. You, you go on with our blessing and our money and figure out where he's going to take you. We don't want to catch you sitting in this office thinking about us. We'll be fine. You see, I really think in most cases the church extant of the typical under 100 in worship size could get all the help it needs from a theologian in residence in about 10 hours a week. Because those people in the church extant... Listen, clergy out there, they know how to do it. They don't need us for most of that stuff. Any of my colleagues here willing to confess that we have sometimes pastored and programmed our little churches half to death because we're not sure what else to do with our time and all our good ideas. (laughs) Ten hours a week on the stuff you actually need a theological education for and what they actually want from you, 
That's it. And then you got what? 30, 40, 60 hours a week left? More? To spend chasing Jesus. Letting him take you places the congregation can't go, maybe shouldn't have to. They abide, you abide, just in different senses of that word. One of you stays put and one of you keeps up. And over time, in my mind's eye, the church extant in natural, blameless, life cycle decline could give way sweetly to whatever mind-blowing, jaw-dropping, quirky, queer, weird, and wonderful community of belonging grows up in Jesus' name. What I'm thinking we could call this model is good fruit. I appointed you to go and bear fruit, Jesus said, fruit that will last, same word, fruit that abides, Or maybe from Psalm 22, we could call it God's deliverance to a people yet unborn. Isn't that something? That the reimagining of the clerical vocatio for the new day in which we find ourselves could be for the declaration of God's deliverance to a people not even born yet? That the call to abide in Jesus might be a call to think past this moment and our existence in it and instead leverage our history for the sake of the future, for the sake of the people who are not here yet. That we could imagine a future in which some of us are blessed to stay put, not taking up more than our fair share of the resources, but abiding steadfastly the way we know how to do really well while some of us are designated, commissioned, set free to take off running after him, just trying to keep up because he is always on the move, no place to lay his head. Abiding. Abiding. Staying put. Keeping up. Wouldn't that be something, church? Thank you, Katie. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, let's sing number 395, verses 1 and 3.